Good morning. morning. I'd like to begin by reading to you from the third chapter of John. I'm going to start at the beginning of the chapter and go about halfway through. There was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. The same came to Jesus by night and said unto him, Rabbi, we know that thou art a teacher come from God. For no man can do these miracles that thou doest, except God be with him. Jesus answered and said unto him, Verily, verily, I say unto thee, Except a man be born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus saith unto him, How can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter the second time into his mother's womb and be born? Jesus answered, Verily, verily, I say unto thee, Except a man be born of water and of the Spirit, he cannot enter into the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Marvel not that I said unto thee, ye must be born again. The wind bloweth where it listeth, and thou hearest the sound thereof, but canst not tell whence it cometh, and whither it goeth. So is every one that is born of the Spirit." Nicodemus answered and said unto him, How can these things be? Jesus answered and said unto him, Art thou a master of Israel, and knoweth not these things? Verily, verily, I say unto thee, We speak that which we do know, and testify that which we have seen, and ye receive not our witness. If I have told you earthly things, and ye believe not, how shall ye believe if I tell you of heavenly things? And no man hath ascended up to heaven, but he that came down from heaven, even the Son of Man, which is in heaven. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have eternal life. For God so loved the world, that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. For God sent not his Son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. He that believeth on him is not condemned, but he that believeth not is condemned already, because he hath not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. And this is the condemnation, that light is come into the world, and men love darkness rather than light, because their deeds were evil. For everyone that doeth evil hateth the light. Neither cometh to the light, lest his deeds should be reproved. But he that doeth truth cometh to the light, that his deeds may be manifest, that they are wrought in God. This is God's word. The kingdom of God is a spiritual kingdom. This passage speaks to that. And if we reflect on some of the things we've learned about the kingdom of God in the passages that we've looked at in recent months... We see that the kingdom of God is something that has come with power into this world. That it was something that was announced by John the Baptist and announced by Jesus. It was something that Jesus and his disciples taught about and expounded upon. It was something that has 
always existed because it speaks of the reign of God over his creation. And it was something that was foretold about in the Old Covenant scriptures that spoke about the Messiah who would come and establish his kingdom, that he would establish the reign of God. We saw two weeks ago how Jesus himself said that unless you receive the kingdom of God as a little child, you shall in no wise enter therein. We see that entering the kingdom is something that involves receiving the kingdom as a gift from God, receiving it as helpless, needy, humble children who cannot uh, grasp onto it or attain it for ourselves, but it must come from the almighty power and free, generous gift of God. And now in this passage, we have another set of scriptures that put another layer on our understanding of the kingdom of God, that unfold to us spiritual truth about the nature of God's kingdom and what is necessary and what is required to perceive it, to see it, and to enter into it. And this passage speaks about nothing less than a new birth, a being born again. And it comes from a conversation that a leader among the Jews, a Pharisee by the name of Nicodemus, had with Jesus. It begins by introducing Nicodemus, who's described as a ruler of the Jews and a Pharisee, coming to Jesus by night and questioning him. This he did because he desired to learn a greater degree of truth from Jesus. He perceived Jesus as someone who was sent from God... Someone who exhibited in his life the power of God. When you read about, you know, we, we, we weren't there to witness these things firsthand like Nicodemus and some others were. But when we read about the miracles that Jesus performed, the profound truth that he spoke, the way that he was a- able to answer his enemies with such wisdom and such precision and insight, enlightening the minds of his hearers, to deep spiritual truth and confounding his enemies with the truth that he spoke, teaching the deepest and most majestic truths of God's word and putting them into parables in simple terms that even a child could understand. And then performing these miraculous works, healing the lepers, cleansing them, causing the lame to walk, causing the blind to see. When we read about it, we see in Jesus the power and the character of God at work. And we're amazed. If our eyes are open to see what is there, we're amazed. We see that Jesus must be come from God, that in him must dwell the nature of God, for no one could do these things except by the power and nature of God in him. And how much more so one who witnessed and heard firsthand and secondhand about the miraculous works of Jesus, turning water into wine and and performing mighty works. And he comes to him and he says, we know that thou, Rabbi, we know that thou art a teacher come from God. This title of Rabbi, teacher, master. It was a title of respect, a title of honor, the title that would be given to one 
from whom you would expect to learn spiritual truth, to be guided by, to be discipled by. And they looked to Jesus as this uh, master and Lord. Jesus actually forbade his, his followers, his disciples, from referring to one another by this term. But he himself receives it. He himself receives it and is worthy of it. He says, we know, uh, he says to him, We know that thou art a teacher come from God, for no man can do these miracles that thou doest, except God be with him. He was perceptive. He understood. He understood that even though Satan transforms himself into an angel of light, and even though Satan and his ministers can sometimes perform or appear to perform mighty works, yet no one could do the miracles and the good works that Jesus did, except by the power of God. This kind of statement is in contrast to the very words that Jesus' enemies used to accuse him. They said of Jesus that he does his works by the power of Beelzebub. They thought, they, they at least said, that Jesus was doing his mighty works by the power of the devil. And Jesus accused them of blasphemy against the Holy Spirit. Because the, the power of the Spirit of God was in their midst. And they accused it of being of the devil. They did not recognize the power of God before them. But Nicodemus recognizes something and he comes to Jesus. And Jesus answers him. Not by a direct response to what he said, it seems. But by opening up to Nicodemus one of the most important, profound, spiritual truths of the nature of God's kingdom and what is required for the salvation of mankind, and that is the subject of the new birth. This is a theme that is one of the primary themes of the whole Gospel of John. We see that because in how it's introduced very early on when in John chapter 1, John describes Jesus coming into the world and being the light of the world. John the Baptist came and he was to bear witness to the light, but he himself was not that light. Verse 8, he was not that light, but was sent to bear witness of that light. And that was the true light, which lighteth every man that cometh into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made by him, and the world knew him not. This is speaking of Jesus. Jesus, the one who created all things. Without him was not anything made that was made. It's his world. This is Jesus' world, and Jesus came into his world that he has made. And here is the astounding thing. The world that he made, the world that he owns, that belongs to him, that's his to inherit didn't recognize him, didn't know him, didn't love him, didn't receive him. He came into his own, it says, and his own received him not. But, but, that's not the end of the story. It goes on. But as many as received him, to them gave he power to become the sons of God, even to them that believe on his name, which were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. A new birth. A new birth is a necessity. 
for human beings, sinful, fallen human beings, to participate in and be part of the kingdom of God, to enter into God's kingdom. He says, Verily, verily, I say unto thee, except a man be born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. He says something that is not going to be immediately understood by Nicodemus in hearing him. And it's often not immediately understood by us when we read it. Because he's speaking of a profound spiritual truth. It is something that to the carnal mind and trying to understand and explain it naturally, it doesn't make sense to us. And Nicodemus is a a great stand-in for the way that in our human reasoning and natural understanding, we would try to make sense of this. We could look at his response as, as silly, but it's silly because it's an example of what it is trying to understand spiritual truth in purely natural terms. Jesus says he must be born again. This is literally talking about a second birth. Every single one of us, this is some, no matter how well or not well I know you today, I know of every single one of you, one thing at least, that you were born a first time. I can tell just by looking at you. I can tell because you're here. I have the evidence of it. And you know, I didn't need to be there. I don't need to see your birth certificate. It's completely unnecessary. You don't have to prove that you were born the first time. It's obvious. Every single one of us was born a first time as our natural birth. That which is born of flesh is flesh. And the proof of it is that we are alive today. We exist. And therefore, going back in time, we must have been born at some time. But Jesus isn't talking about the first birth, though he's referencing it by implication, by saying he must be born again. That means in order to to see the kingdom of God, in order to perceive it, to partake of it, he must be born again. This is why I say the kingdom of God is a spiritual kingdom. It's a spiritual kingdom because he's not talking about a second natural birth, though that's the first thing Nicodemus seems to jump to. How can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter the second time in his mother's womb and be born? He half understands what Jesus is saying and half doesn't understand it. Here's what he understands. Jesus is saying a second birth is necessary. What he doesn't understand is he's trying to interpret it in natural terms. An old man, he has to be born again to enter the kingdom of God. Is he going to enter back into his mother's womb? It's absurd. The mind doesn't understand it because it is spiritual in nature. The kingdom of God is spiritual. Now, let's clarify that a little bit. Because the spiritual nature of the kingdom of God does not mean that the kingdom of God is is somehow uh, something that we cannot here and now be part of because it is possible. The kingdom of God has come with power to the earth. The kingdom of God uh, also referred to the kingdom of heaven. Here's Here's an analogy to think about this. Because the other thing I would say is the kingdom of God and the kingdom of heaven is not only something 
that we are to begin experiencing when we, quote, die and go to heaven. We talk about that, dying and going to heaven. But that is, that is not the only way in which we experience and live in and be part of the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God is something that we can enter into and be part of and participate in here and now. But it's spiritual. It's not like the kingdoms of this world. Now, some kingdoms in this world, in order to be a citizen of that kingdom, one of the primary ways that you can be a citizen of that kingdom is that you are born into that kingdom. Uh, Paul, the apostle, for example, he was a Roman citizen. He was a Roman citizen by being born as a Roman citizen. I don't know exactly how that worked in his case, but he, was, he said, he asserted that he was a citizen by birth. Uh, my understanding is anyone born nowadays in the United States of America is a citizen by their birth. Or if you're born to parents who are United States citizens, you're a citizen by birth. You have a right to be called a citizen of the United States by your birth. Well, that is something that in a spiritual way, the kingdom of God works that way as well. That the kingdom of God, to be a member of the kingdom of God, the only way to be part of it is to be born into it. But it's not the natural birth that entitles you to it. And this was, this was in fact, at least part of the message that Jesus was getting across to Nicodemus. Because Nicodemus was a ruler of the Jews. Um, but let, let's go back to one other thing. I was, I was going to use this analogy. We talk about the kingdom of heaven. And how can I say that the kingdom of heaven is here? How can I say that the kingdom of heaven is in your midst? We know heaven is, is in heaven. But think about how you might speak of the kingdom of Rome in the old days under the Roman Empire. Well, where is the kingdom of Rome? The kingdom of Rome is in Rome, of course. But the kingdom of Rome is not only in Rome. The kingdom of Rome is also anywhere and everywhere where the dominion of the emperor of Rome, the Caesar, anywhere and everywhere his dominion is established in the earth. So Rome can conquer a territory in Asia or Africa or in the British Isles. They can take it over. They can establish their dominion there. They can implement the laws and the rule of Caesar, set up emissaries and, and ambassadors. And the kingdom of Rome can be extended to those places. Well, in a very particular way, ever since Jesus came to this earth to establish his kingdom, God has been extending his dominion to this earth. His reign and his rule is being established in this earth. And that can be difficult for us to understand sometimes because the nature of it is different from the kingdoms of this world. He didn't do it by setting up a carnal army to establish his dominion and bring people under their control, but he does it through truth. The nature of his kingdom is in truth. They that are of his Kingdom, they that are his people, his sheep, they hear his voice and they follow him. They 
by the power of God at work in their lives, have a desire to willingly submit themselves to his reign and his rule. And in doing so, they carry out the will of God in the earth. So that the prayer of uh, Jesus, that, that Jesus taught his disciples, that it has its uh, ongoing and continuous and, and, and growing fulfillment when we are to pray, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Because the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. And so when we speak about the kingdom of heaven, we're not just talking about something that is only in our future. But we're talking about something that God has established in the earth. But the only way to see it, the only way to enter into it is by a new birth. Jesus answered, verily, verily. Notice three times, at least in this passage, Jesus introduces what he's saying with verily, verily. This is, this is like making an oath. This is Jesus affirming in the most strong terms the truthfulness and importance of what he's saying. You know, strictly, it wasn't necessary for Jesus to preface what he's saying with truly, truly, or verily, verily. I mean, everything that Jesus said, every word that he spoke is the truth, is to be believed. Every word that God speaks is to believe. But there are times when God affirms what he's saying with an oath. And when he does, all the more we are assured of the truthfulness of what he's saying. Well, here he continues to expound on this. He says, I say unto thee, except a man be born of water and of the spirit, he cannot enter into the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the spirit is spirit. Marvel not that I say unto thee, ye must be born again. Ye must be born again. Jesus in explaining the nature of his kingdom to Nicodemus and by extension to everyone that would read and hear these words is made to understand that in order to enter into the kingdom of God, what is necessary is not merely a moral improvement in man. It's not merely an act of man's will, a decision that he would make. But what is necessary is a radical transformation of his whole nature by the power of God. A new nature. It's not enough for man to just uh, try to improve himself enough to be worthy of God's kingdom. It's not enough for man to just be born into the right family, to have the right natural lineage. Well, my parents are in the kingdom of God. So by that birth, I'm in the kingdom of God. It's not by the will of the flesh, not by the will of man, but of God. But of God. It takes nothing less than the sovereign power of God, the work of God's spirit to transform someone and translate them from the power of darkness into the kingdom of God. This is a mighty work of God. There's, there's a number of uh, things in this passage that we can miss that will limit 
how well we understand what Jesus is saying. I, I think one of those is to begin reading it. And when Jesus says, you must be born, of, born again, uh, interpret that as Jesus is somehow giving Nicodemus an instruction manual on how to be saved. Some people interpret it that way. This is Jesus is giving Nicodemus a set of instructions, a set of steps of what he must need to do. And if that's all it is, if, if being born again is something that a man could do by his own power and his own will, then it just it leads to an absurdity. The, the parallel doesn't make any sense. I mean, that would be like Nicodemus's response. What do I do? Enter the second time into my mother's womb and be born a second time? You weren't born the first time by your own power. That's why it's called born of God. It must come from the power of God. So we have to understand that uh, Jesus is talking about more than just uh, a set of instructions of what Nicodemus needs to do. Here's another thing that we ought not to miss about this passage. This is not just talking about something that is uh, purely on the individual level. That what what, uh, Jesus is talking about is just uh, only something for individual consideration. There's a reason that Jesus says to Nicodemus, ye must be born again. Now, sometimes the language of the King James translation can trip us up. Sometimes it can add a layer of difficulty because it's the way that they wrote 400 years ago and not always the way that we write today. So sometimes it can make it more difficult for us to understand what we're reading. But there are times where uh, this particular thing can be helpful Because in modern English, we don't really have a difference between singular and plural you, second second person pronouns. So if I say you, and I'm talking to a single person, um, it's ambiguous of whether I'm saying you, singular, or you, plural. But here, he says ye, and not thou. And so we understand that this is something that, it wasn't just about Nicodemus. Though this does apply to Nicodemus as an individual. But we can also understand that Jesus is saying something that is necessary for sinful, fallen mankind as a whole. Ye must be born again. That is God's kingdom, the salvation which God is working in the earth for sinful, fallen man requires mankind itself to be remade in God's image. God made man. He made him very good. It says God has made man upright, but he has sought out many inventions. Man fell into sin. When Adam and Eve sinned and ate of the tree that God said, you shall not eat in the day you eat thereof, you shall surely die. And mankind fell in sin. And ever since that time, we have inherited a sinful nature from our parents. God made man in his image, but you go back and you read in Genesis 5 when it has the lineage of Adam and Seth and Enos and the children. It says each one, they were born in the image of their father. 
And all of us have sinned and we have the nature of the flesh. That which is born of flesh is flesh. And every single one of us was born with that nature and has lived out that nature. Galatians chapter 5 speaks about the works of the flesh. I'll read to you briefly from that. Galatians chapter 5. Now the works of the flesh are manifest, which are these. Adultery, fornication, uncleanness, lasciviousness, idolatry, witchcraft, hatred, variance, emulations, wrath, strife, seditions, heresies, envyings, murders, drunkenness, revelings, and such like of the which I tell you before, as I have also told you in time past, that they which do such things shall not inherit the kingdom of God. That is our nature. According to the flesh. That is our fleshly nature. You can't just fix that up. You can't just improve upon it. You can't just make it better. You require, and God's word has foretold from Old Testament to New Testament, the necessity of a transformation of your very being. Here's one of the ways it's phrased. God says there would come a time when he would take out the heart of stone and give a heart of flesh. He foretells a time when he would put his spirit in his people. That is to be born again is to be born into the family of God. It is to be born of the spirit of God. To be born with God's nature. God's spirit is in his people. And so their whole being, their whole nature is transformed. They have a new nature in themselves. He goes on in that passage in Galatians, but the fruit of the spirit is love, joy, peace, long-suffering, gentleness, goodness, faith, meekness, temperance. Against such there is no law. And they that are Christ have crucified the flesh with the affections and lusts. If we live in the spirit, let us also walk in the spirit. Jesus is talking about the power of God working a transformation in the lives of his people. And this, uh, this was, so, so you can think about this in different levels. First of all, this is true at the individual level. For every single person, for every single person, it is necessary if they are to enter into the kingdom of God, if they are to be an inheritor of the blessings and the heavenly treasures of God and be part of God's family, it is necessary that they be born from above, that they be born again by the power of God. It's also true that it's, it's true of the Jews as a people. You know, they, they actually use this phrase, being born again, they actually use this phrase to describe the uh, conversion of a Gentile to become part of the Jews. When a Gentile uh, converted and was proselytized and became part of the Jews, 
they sometimes use the phrase that they were born again. They, they were changing their whole identity. They were changing their national identity and their citizenship and becoming uh, no longer an Egyptian or no longer a, a, a Greek, but they were becoming a Jew. But what Jesus is saying to Nicodemus is that ye must be born again. Not just the Gentiles in order to be grafted into the family of God among the Jews, but Jews as well. That, that all of you need to be transformed by the power of God. But not only is it true, is he saying, what he's saying here is not only true of the Jews, but it's true of mankind in general. That fallen, sinful mankind must be made new by the power of God. Paul speaks about it this way in another place. He says, if any man is in Christ, he is a new creature. Old things are passed away. Behold, all things are become new. Another uh, thing that we can miss in trying to understand the power of what's being said here and the, and the truth of it is to separate out the first part of what we've read from the second part. But the second part offers the explanation. We're talking about new birth. It's by the power of God's Spirit, by the work of God's Spirit. But, but how? How does that take place? On what basis does that take place? How is God going to bring this about? Well, we have to keep reading. We have to keep reading if we are to understand this. And, and this is related to a, a point that I've tried to emphasize before about the nature of the kingdom of God. You know, the, the people of that nation, they were living in expectation of God coming and establishing his kingdom in the earth. They were excited about it. They were looking forward to it. They knew that the Messiah was going to come and he was going to ride and he was going to deliver them from their enemies. He was going to overthrow their oppression. He was going to lead them. He was going to reign over them with wisdom and with justice and with truth. Doesn't that sound great? Doesn't that sound good to, to uh, look forward to a king coming wise and just and holy and righteous and powerful and mighty to come in, to ride in, to conquer, to overthrow our enemies, to rule with justice and truth and righteousness. And they were looking forward to that. And God in his purpose, had foretold and promised these very things. But what many of them didn't understand, that God had also foretold, but was often missed, was that in order to enter into the glory of the kingdom of God, it was necessary for that very king to come to humble himself, to suffer, to descend into death itself. So that he would conquer not just their earthly enemies, not just the, the Romans or the Egyptians or whoever it was that they felt oppressed by at the time, not just to overthrow their, the external enemies, 
but to conquer sin and death itself. It was necessary that he might descend into death and conquer it. He goes on, uh, Nicodemus, Jesus says, The wind blows where it listeth, you, thou hearest the sound thereof, but canst not tell whence it cometh and whither it goeth. So is every one that is born of the Spirit. That itself is profound truth that we're not even really delving into, but it's speaking about how new birth comes by the power of the Spirit of God. God is the initiating, driving, and operative force in bringing about new life in his people. And uh, I think there's layers of, of meaning here, but at least part of it, think about it this way. I was saying before, Uh, I didn't need to see when you were born to know that you were born. I don't have to even remember my own birth to be absolutely sure that I was born. Because I'm alive. I'm here. So I know it happened. And sometimes spiritual life is like that. You know, sometimes people have a dramatic powerful experience that they remember for the rest of their life and they think back. But you know, even that dramatic, powerful experience itself is not the proof of spiritual life in somebody. Because that can, you know, our emotions, they're unreliable. They can trick us. We can think we had a dramatic experience and we could be deceived by that. That's not the proof that's given of the, of the new birth. You know, you, the Spirit of God moves and is at work, and we don't always, we, we don't see the Spirit. The Spirit's invisible, but we perceive the effects of it. We see the fruit of it. And you, you, you can perceive spiritual life in someone, not because you saw the Spirit creep into their heart and transform it, but because you see the result. You see that There's a love of God and God's people that wasn't there before. You see that there's a a hatred of sin and a desire for righteousness and holiness that wasn't there. You see that there is a belief in the Lord Jesus Christ, trust in him, receiving his gifts like a little child. These are the evidence that the power of God's spirit is at work. And has been at work. The, 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 the Spirit of God is, is the operative cause in that new birth. Nicodemus answered and said to him, How can these things be? And that's what I want to look at next as we, as we wrap this up and we bring it to its conclusion. Art thou a master of Israel and knoweth not these things? Verily, verily, I say unto thee, we speak that which we do know and testify that which we have seen, and ye receive not our witness. If I have told you earthly things and ye believe not, how shall ye believe if I tell you of heavenly things? And no man hath ascended up to heaven, but he that came down from heaven, even the Son of Man, which is in heaven. So we see the Son of Man, the Messiah, Jesus. Where did he come from? He came from above. He came from heaven. His birth was in a very important way unlike our births. It was like our births in that he is born, he took on flesh, he took fully took on human nature. 
But he was born of a virgin who conceived of the Holy Spirit. He came down from above and he came down to this earth. He has in him the heavenly nature and his heavenly spiritual nature. He gives to his people. He puts his nature in them. He puts his spirit in them. And no man hath ascended up to heaven, but he that came down from heaven. And then verse 14. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have eternal life. Now Jesus is saying something that to our modern ears and understanding might only seem to confuse us further. Because he makes this reference to a serpent and Moses and the wilderness. But what Jesus is actually doing is Jesus is offering, his providing to his hearer the explaining paradigm to understand everything that he said so far. And Nicodemus would have been familiar with what Jesus said. And we too can be familiar with what Jesus said because it's recorded for us in the scriptures. Back in the book of Numbers, it describes the very event that Jesus is talking about. This event provides for us an analogy of God's salvation of his people from sin and the sting of sin. And it takes place when Israel was in the wilderness. And I, if you want to read it, read uh, Numbers chapter 21, uh, verses 1 through 9. I'll just briefly go over it today for the sake of time. But God delivered Israel from their enemies. In fact, they uh, committed themselves to it. They, they made a vow to the Lord. They said, if you'll deliver us uh, from... That if you'll deliver our enemies into our hand, we'll utterly destroy their cities. This is what God had commanded them to do. And God hearkened to their voice and he delivered them. And he provided for them a great victory. And as God often, as, as often happens when God delivers his people, we rejoice in that deliverance. And then in our impatience, and doubt and sinfulness, we forget what God has done before. That's why we always need to be reminded again and again, even of what God has already done for us, because they forgot. And it says, as they journeyed from Mount Hor by the way of the Red Sea to compass the land of Edom, the soul of the people was much discouraged because of the way. So they grew discouraged. They grew fearful. And they spake against God and against Moses. Wherefore have ye brought us up out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? For there is no bread, neither is there any water, and our soul loatheth this light bread. They're complaining. They're murmuring. You know what they're complaining about? Well, they're hungry. They're scared. They're discouraged. But they're complaining about manna, Bread that God gave them miraculously from heaven to feed them when they were in the wilderness. And they're complaining about it. They're tired of it. They speak against God. They murmur against God. And God punishes for them. For their disobedience, God sends venomous serpents among them, fiery serpents, to bite them. And when they're bitten, 
They die. They die. Apparently not right away. But the, the sentence of death is in them. It's in their flesh. They're going to die. Very soon. It's true of us spiritually. It's true of us. You know, it, it's true of us both naturally and spiritually. We have the sentence of death in ourselves because of sin. Because of our sin, we will die shortly. Just a brief space of time. And even, even if it hasn't fully taken us yet, everything necessary for it to take us is already there. It's already in us. And so it was with them. They were bitten by a venomous serpent and they were going to die of this thing. And in the midst of their affliction and punishment, they cry out to God and God provides deliverance to them. He commands Moses. He says, Moses, make a bronze serpent and put it up on this pole, this stake. For all the people to see. And it describes this here. It says he made this serpent. And Moses prayed for the people. And the Lord said unto Moses, Make thee a fiery serpent and set it upon a pole. And it shall come to pass that everyone that is bitten when he looketh upon it shall live. And Moses made a serpent of brass and put it upon a pole. And it came to pass that if a serpent had bitten any man, when he beheld the serpent of brass, he lived. God provided life. He provided deliverance for them, for the people. He saved them. And the way that he saved them, interestingly, is he had Moses set up something that was made in the very likeness of the source of their death. And Jesus says to Nicodemus, he says, as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the son of man be lifted up. You know what it says of Jesus? He was lifted up on the cross to die. It says he was made a curse for us. He was made a curse. He was made in the likeness of sin. He took upon our sin upon himself. That serpent that they were to look to was made in the very likeness of the curse that had come upon the people. And Jesus was made a curse for us. He took upon himself the sins of his people. And he suffered for those sins. And he died for those sins. He says, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have eternal life. Now here we have another parallel. In In the Moses and the serpent story that's given to us, When the people looked upon the serpent that had been bitten by a fiery serpent, when they looked, they lived. They were healed. That sting of death was gone. It was taken away from them. It was like it never happened at all. They were healed. They were alive. They were cured of their physical death in that moment, in that time. Well, he says, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up. But the parable, the parallel here is not, uh, it's not saying that Jesus is going to be lifted up on the cross. And when anybody looks at him and sees him on the cross, that they would be healed from the sting of sin and death. 
The parallel is not to a physical looking upon him on the cross, but to a spiritual seeing him by faith. It says that whosoever believeth in him should not perish. And here's the other part of that parallel. It isn't just that they would be healed from natural death. Because those same people in the wilderness that were healed from the sting of death of the fiery serpent, they died later. But would be healed from spiritual death. Shall not perish, but have everlasting life. Have, sorry, eternal life. Then verse 16, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. For God sent not his son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. So we see how, how would God bring about a new birth, a new creation in this world? He accomplished it by sending his son, Jesus Christ, into the world. By sending him to to die upon the cross, to take upon himself the sins of his people, to suffer the just penalty for those sins, that you and I, that whosoever believes in him, might not perish, but have everlasting life. And it is upon this that the kingdom of God, his spiritual kingdom, is built. It is by this power of God that people who by nature are citizens of this world, by nature are called children of wrath, are transformed, translated into the kingdom and the power of God. Thank you for your attention today.